This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. whole warehouse smelled like a guava uh it was it was crazy it was shocking um and it was really inspiring and and thrilling we've made like a pretty big what we think at least is a pretty big advance in biotransforming those styles and, and so that's why we're talking about in this poster just last week, Jennifer Dudna from UC Berkeley became a recipient of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the development of a method for genome editing known as CRISPR-Cas9. This week on the show, we catch up with Charles Denby from Berkeley Yeast, who is using a similar set of miraculous genetic scissors on brewer's yeast. Pat Brown may be saving the planet with impossible burgers, but Charles Denby is helping brewers make impossible beer. Hi, my name is Charles Denby, and I'm with Berkeley Yeast. First of all, I can't believe it's been two and a half years since we last talked. I mean, that just blows my mind. Yeah, um, I know. I know. It seems like just yesterday. <laughs> I don't know if it feels weird to you or not, but... I remember um, I very you- vividly our last, our last conversation. I remember very specifically, we went around in a circle thinking about different terms to describe, like where we ended up talking yeah. about DNA scissors with Brian. That's right. Yeah. You know, I knew you'd be back though. You're solving too many interesting problems to to not be a regular on the show. So, um, I guess any, anyone who's been with us that long will certainly remember you from episode 84. And if anybody listening hasn't already heard Charles on episode 84, I definitely recommend hitting stop now and going back and listening to that one first. So, Charles, you're at it again. Um, I'm looking at your WBC poster, which covers two new engineered yeast strains that do very different things. Uh, what was the goal with the first strain? One of the big differences between last time we were at WBC, which is obviously in 2016, and, and this time is that um, we've really, like, right now we are 
focused on um, solving the problems or creating solutions to challenges uh, that are the most important to the brewing community, right? So um, we come from kind of an academic uh, background and you know in academia a lot of times you read the literature to find the problems that you want to work on uh, but now we're very much like going out and chat especially before COVID like we're going out and chatting with brewers and trying to understand the things that they're the most excited about and the overwhelming uh, consensus from all the breweries that we talked to was that they love these flavors and aromas that you guys know from like tropical fruits and from various different hop cultivars. Um, and that's like really the, the set of flavors that's most prized in the industry from, from our, from our, you know, from our survey, um, informal survey. And so one of the things that we knew about those flavors is that a lot of them come from these thiol compounds. And um, we're also aware that hops and malt have these thiol compounds in a in a different form like a precursor form um we refer to them as like bound either glutathione or cysteine bound thiols um and so we figured that the we knew that the yeast is is able to um break that chemical bond that differentiates a bound thiol from a aromatic thiol. And so uh, typically yeast, you know, yeasts range in their ability to cleave that, those chemical bonds. Um, and some of them don't do it at all. And some of them do it at, you know, 1% efficiency, others up to like 5% efficiency. And so we were interested to see whether we could get a yeast that does it at, at, at even more efficiently. And so that's why we really set about working on this project. Um, and, and yeah, so it's been, it's been a really interesting project and we worked really, really actively over, on it over the last you know, two and a half years since we last talked. There's several thiols that have been identified as important when the goal is to achieve those strong tropical flavors and aromas. Uh, Tim Wallen's poster, which we talked about on the show just a few weeks ago, focused on 4-MMP, for example. Which thiol or thiols did you set out to amplify here? Yeah, so the enzyme that is um, uh, liberating those thiols will actually act on 4-MMP, uh, 3MH. Um, and what we've observed is there is a lot of 3MH precursor in malt. Um, and, and there's lots of precursor for both, both 4MMP and 3MH in hops. So this enzyme will do, will, will basically, uh, do what your ingredients have, like it will liberate whatever, um, bound thiols your ingredients have. Wow. So this is not just working on 3MH. I didn't realize that. That's, that's Yeah. Cool. Yeah. The data in the poster is on 3MH. And the reason for that is just because um, we have like uh, built our, built our uh, GCMS methods around 3MH. And um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good one for like, it's, it's a pretty strong indicator for us. Sure. That's awesome. Um, okay. Well, Talk about why it's difficult to get a lot of 3MH and some of these other thiols in beer the old-fashioned way. 
Yeah. So, um, tip like so the the biggest challenge really is that these guys are bound up on um, on peptides either on on a glutathione peptide or on cysteine, and so when they're bound to those. Um, amino acids, basically they're not volatile and they're not, and they don't, you know, have those flavors. It's only when you break that chemical bond and now you have just the, just the free 3MH where they start to work their magic. Okay. Um, now there's some Australians in the wine industry that figured out how to increase 3MH. Talk about that. Yeah. Okay, cool. So there's a really cool study from oh, over 10 years ago now where uh, folks at AWRI uh, developed a yeast strain that has an enzyme uh, that's, that basically does the same activity that our enzyme is doing, where it basically cleaves the, you know, the free thiol. Uh, but the thing that's interesting about, about that is that it also generates a very potent off flavor. So, uh, and that uh, <laughs> that flavor smells like poop, actually. <laughs> so, what you know, we were doing some early experiments just to kind of validate what they had observed previously, and we found, oh man, like we're getting these beautiful, bright guava tropical flavor and aromas from these strains. But we're also getting these fecal notes, and <laughs> obviously, we we. <laughs> We were pretty concerned about that, <laughs> so um, we wanted. We, the first thing we wanted to do was figure out what that's coming from, and it turns out that that's coming from the fact that that enzyme can also uh, convert tryptophan into indole, which is one of the things that drives the the poop the poop flavor poop aroma. Um, and so the next challenge we set out to tackle, and that's that's kind of figure two of this poster, is trying to engineer that enzyme so it would make the guava flavor but not the poop aroma uh, and we were able to find uh, we were able to engineer the enzyme such that it was specific and it only makes the guava uh, flavor and aroma you can see that in the result on in figure three now you just said tryptophan isn't that the stuff in turkey that's supposed to make people sleepy Heck yeah, yeah. That's one of the amino acids, and um, yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> there are the reason that tryptophan, well, the reason that indole uh, is you know humans have evolved to like recognize indole is that a lot of your gut microbiome will trans will uh, convert tryptophan into indole, and like that's that's literally why uh, poop smells like poop. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Okay, so. Uh, after you sort of solved the tryptophan problem, um, the abstract says that you ended up seeing thiol increases um, over tenfold with this strain. That's a pretty big increase. Talk about that. Yeah, honestly, it's it's um, even we were surprised when when we got these results. Like you, some of our very first batches that we so. Our, our work stream is basically, um, you know, we'll, we'll work with brewers to try and figure out problems that you know, we, they want to solve. Then we'll um, figure out like how we can, like figure out a strategy for how we can tackle that. Then we'll generate strains that we think will solve that problem. Uh, and then we'll basically ferment pilot batches at 20 liter scale in our pilot brew house. And we have, uh, you know, uh, 
couple dozen fermenters so that we can test lots and lots of different strains. Um, and sometimes you do have to test a bunch of strains and sometimes it's, it's kind of an iterative process where, you know, the first batch you, you produce doesn't do the thing that you want and you have to go back and, uh, and try and figure out like, like this is a great example of that. But anyway, when we finally did get to a point where, uh, it was just producing that 3MH, like our whole, uh, our whole warehouse smelled like a guava. Uh, it was, it was crazy. It was shocking. Um, and it was really inspiring and, and thrilling. That's awesome. Um, okay. What can you tell us about how the wort was hopped for these trials? Yeah. So pretty sparingly, like we used a bit of bittering hop addition, um, but otherwise like in this particular, in figure three, that's just the three MH from the malt that we use, which is, pretty, pretty, you know, standard, uh, like craft grain bill for like a, a pale ale or a, or an IPA. Wow. That's amazing. So the, I've, I've not heard a lot about this, um, about the possibility of malt being leveraged for these, for production of these styles. Um, talk more about that. I mean, no, I, no one's talking about that as far as I know. Totally. It's all, yeah. it's all about the hops, right? Yes. Yes. You're absolutely right. I remember, um, it was either two, 2017, something like that, when I went to the, the Hops conference at OSU, uh, which is a really cool conference. And a lot of folks were talking about, you know, um, the the bound thiols that are present in Hops. Uh, but, but I remember distinctly seeing one talk that said, well, actually, a lot of this precursor compound can come from malt as well. And we didn't necessarily, like, I wasn't really sure whether to believe that or not. Um, and it really wasn't until we were getting these huge guava bombs out of uh, just like a pretty bare uh, malt-based recipe that we were, that we were co so confident that there is a lot of that 3MH precursor in malt. Um, there is, of course, even more uh, if, you, if you add particular uh, hop cultivars. And I, I think that's one of the things that I find most exciting about you know what's to come is that right now we have a pretty good sense for how this strain plays with typical malt bill but i think it's going to get even more interesting when uh, brewers use different uh, hops and see how this strain interacts with those hops and and also like different um different uh, other different substrates like if you have other grains that you want to ferment um seeing how it how it will play with those Wow, that's crazy. So, um, I guess just real quick, do you mind saying, I don't think you said what varieties you used, um, hop varieties you used. Um, so, I mean, there were no, like, you weren't, there were no, you know, Southern Hemisphere hops in this or anything, right? This No, no, but they had those, like, you know, cr crazy guava aromas that you would get from those, you know, Australian, New Zealand uh, hop cultivars for sure. So, so what variety did you use in these trials? You know, we bittered with something like Northern, like, hmm, something very boring. Honestly, it was like, okay. <laughs> I can't remember the exact cultivar. No, you can't even remember it. That's, uh, that's great. <laughs> uh, okay. So, um, I guess I want to ask you a question about malt um, and, and sort of like understanding the level of precursor in malt, right? Because obviously there's so many different malts out there coming from so many different places. Like, um, how does a brewer figure like is all malts going to have this precursor enough of this precursor in it or is this something that we need to start looking at and figuring out how do we 
does that need to be on my next malt COA? Yeah. I mean, I think probably both. Like on the one hand, I can say that we've tried this with a variety of different uh, grain bills and we see it across the board. But I think what we are going to start finding out is that, yeah, they're, they're, they're certainly going to range. Like there's going to be a, a, a range in the, uh, the amount of, of bound 3MH and, and other thiols. Uh, so we, I can't say that we know a ton about that yet. I know that I can say that a handful of different grain bills have produced really uh, impressive flavors and aromas, but I do think we still have a lot to learn on that. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, then I don't have to ask my next, next question, which was going to be how important is hop selection, uh, hop variety selection with this strain? And, and I, I was going to say, presumably you'd want to avoid varieties that are low in, in 3MH precursors, but sounds like that doesn't matter. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, but, but both like the other thing is that, well, I can say, you know, very confidently that there's a lot of 3MH precursor in a lot of different malts. Um, you know, uh, that there are tons of, of bound thiols, um, in, in, in hop cultivars, like beyond 3MH, whether it be 4MMP, um, certainly we know like the, the most famous ones that have been reviewed in literature are 3MH, 3MHA, which is just a acetylated version of 3MH, 4MMP. But and <laughs> just like with anything, if you try and break down this super complex flavor and aroma that that is, you know, beer ingredients, like there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on, exactly. So, like, you know, those are the those are the heavy hitters, but guaranteed there's another dozen thiol compounds that are impacting the flavor and quality of beer. up and he was like you know what dude diastole sucks like can you do something about that and i was like yeah actually we can totally do something about that i'm john bryce and you're listening to the master brewers podcast from the master brewers association of the americas Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by Brewery Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingaman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingaman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingaman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation live streams data from your active fermentations, allowing you to remotely track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Try it free for 30 days. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. And thanks also to Christian Hansen, suppliers of frozen liquid yeast. You've probably heard of or even attended one of the famous two-week courses that Master Brewers puts on each year in Madison. 
Well, those classes will be all virtual this year, which means you can now get the same education without spending money to travel and while taking advantage of 45% off course tuition. The Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins October 11th, and the Brewing and Malting Science course starts October 25th. Check the show notes for direct links to learn more. Here are a few virtual district meetings to put on your radar. District St. Louis, October 15th. District Mid-South, October 17th. District Eastern Canada, October 27th. And District Northwest, November 13th. And District Georgia meets November 17th at Bold Monk Brewing Company in Atlanta. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. The original strain that you engineered that we already talked about back on episode 84, that was designed to produce linalool and geraniol. And while that was a remarkable feat, one of the criticisms, correct me if I'm wrong, was that the resulting hop flavor and aroma was somewhat one-dimensional. That while those are important compounds, um, hop flavor and aroma, just as we just said, is, is, is more complex than just linalool and geraniol. So I'm assuming that with what's going on with this enzyme now that um, any concerns about this being sort of one-dimensional are, are very much mitigated. Yeah, totally. Um, so, I mean, I think that that is a really good, uh, a really good, like a very legitimate criticism of that first set of strains that we produced. Like, um, you know, obviously that was just when we had when gotten started and that was kind of like our first proof of concept that it was even feasible to create. You don't even make excuses. That sure. was pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like to look back on that, I mean, those, and this, this kind of gets at exactly what we were just talking about with like, you know, we talk a lot about 3MH, 3MHA and 4MMP as the thiols that drive a lot of flavor, whatever. But and, and, and the same with like, if you go back to the 80s and 90s and look at the flavor compounds that people were attributing hop flavor and aroma to, it was a lot of it was, yeah, linalool, geraniol, citronella, all those terpenes that were like, you know, the, the, the heavy hitters. But in reality, there are like, you know, beer is a complex matrix. Hops are a complex matrix. Like um, there's, there's tons of stuff going on there. So yeah, what we're a big part of what we're interested in is expanding the portfolio of, of flavor and aroma compounds that we can get yeast either to make from sugar, like in the case of linalool and geraniol, or to make from uh, the, the, the substrates, the, the malts, the, the, the hops that you're adding or whatever other compound or whatever other uh, ingredients you're adding to your, to your beer. That's awesome. Okay. Um, by the way, I, I'm sure you've got plenty on your plate, but some, someday you should do a study and present at one of these conferences that shows like um, you should do some trials where you take one of the sexy hop varieties and um, you know, and do it as a control at like a very high um, pounds per barrel rate and then um, figure out you know, had just how low you can get that rate with this enzyme. So if you could say like, I took a, a recipe that was, you know, three pounds per barrel galaxy, and I basically were, was able to achieve the same results at, you know, a tenth of a pound per barrel with this enzyme, that would be a pretty awesome um, presentation, paper, poster, or whatever. Yeah. 
I fully agree. Yeah, I that might be ongoing in the lab right now. I don't know. <laughs> Biotransformation is a topic that's come up on the show often. Just a few months ago, we heard uh, about the enzyme trials that Maddie Cavana and Leandro Miners did down in Argentina. We also talked with Eric Abbott last year on episode 119. The focus that time was on yeast strains that are relatively high producers of beta-glucosidase. Without getting too far into the weeds, could you maybe paint the big picture for us in regards to the different strategies for biotransformation and describe why you wanted to focus your efforts on releasing bound thiols rather than hydrolyzing glycosides? Yeah, I mean, I think that the reason we focused on thiols is because when when we go talk to brewers, they're always talking about the flavors that we know come from those thiols. And like and the reason that they're always talking about it is because their customers are always giving them feedback on those beers that end up producing those thiol bombs, you know, and like so you can you can go talk to a brewer that has a GCMS and is quantifying all these different fra- flavor and aroma compounds that are coming from their hops and they have this sense that the beers that they make that chart particularly high on the thiol spectrum are the ones that their customers are coming back and and for for more and more of and uh you know to get back at, at one of your other questions which is like well why is it difficult to get those flavors into your beer the 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 hopping rate that is required to achieve the levels that are very distinctive. Like, okay, obviously it depends on the hop cultivar. It depends where it was grown. It depends on the year that it was grown. But generally speaking, like getting those intense, like guava, passion fruit, those flavors and aromas requires extraordinary hopping rates. And then once you get to those really high rates, um, first of all, it's expensive. But second of all, it starts to present all these other challenges you know one of them that is also kind of we, i'm going to talk about or i talk about in this poster is is the hop creep issue um but others are like you know y- when you start really pushing pushing the limits you get uh, like hop burn i know that's something that a lot of brewers are talking about so i think the thing the, the key thing about what we're working on here is we're trying to be able to get those intense flavor and aromas that that brewers and customers really love, but without having to overdo it on some of the other parts that, that, that kind of piggyback along with, with those heavy hopping loads. You used Cal Ale yeast as a control for this study, I, I guess because it's ubiquitous, but that strain is a pretty low bar for biotransformation. How does your engineered strain stack up to other strains that are more widely used for producing hazy IPAs? Yeah. So in terms of like thiol content, um, they are blowing like all available strains out of the water. I can, I can, I can say that with, uh, a lot of confidence, like a lot of certainty. Um, having said that, um, those hazy strains do a lot of other things, like a lot of things that might be related to various other compounds. So we have also introduced this enzyme into um, hazy strains as well. And that's something that's um, kind of ongoing and we're, we're continuing to experiment with. Uh, but, but basically, you know, we're, we're trying to make this technology or this, this enzyme available in all, all different strains that a brewer might find um, 
might might find useful. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I I have another kind of question about that too. I was kind of curious about how easy or difficult it is. Like once you figured out how to do this for one strain, like you know how how much of a challenge it is to you know engineer the same effect in a different strain. Sounds yeah. like it's maybe not that hard. You know, it's kind of like uh, a lot of what we do, like in concept it's not that hard <laughs> you know it's the same thing for like you know th- this research it's like oh you know uh, in concept it's like figuring out an enzyme that you can or figuring out a gene that you can put into a yeast strain that makes an enzyme that converts bound thiols into free thiols you know seems pretty straightforward but as soon as you start peeling the onion uh you realize that there are layers um and so like you know that that the first layer if you will is like oh this enzyme doesn't just produce that like awesome guava aroma it also produces these not desirable flavors and aromas so um the same thing is true when you switch from like a california bait like a cal ale strain to another strain um it might not work the exact same if you just if you just port the engineering from one strain to another there is oftentimes some additional tinkering that you have to do with the genetics and uh but that's like why we have that's why we do what we do and, and just to you know to like kind of go back to it is like we'll create you know dozens of strains if we're trying to achieve some goal and then we'll take those dozens of strains we'll test them at small scale see how they're doing scale them up to 20 liter scale see how they're doing make sure they're making like really delicious beer and then that's when we pass them on to some of the brewers that we work most closely with um uh, and they'll, you know, scale it up anywhere from like five to 20 to, 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 to more barrels of beer. Uh, and then we just make sure with those first kind of like pilot brews that those are going well uh, before we kind of like o- open it up and, and, and release those strains to the to the broader brewing community. And the last thing that I'll say um, <laughs> that I, or I at some point in this podcast I'd love to get into is just like... Um, we make it like I also make it sound as though we're we're you know we're we're creating this like this this diversity of strains and then we're just like giving them to brewers. We also uh, have a very rigorous uh, safety evaluation analysis uh, uh, process that we go through before you know it gets from our brew house out into the world. Okay, so moving on, we, we've talked a lot about one of the two strains on your WBC poster. The other strain on your poster eliminates a process aid that I regularly buy and dump into my fermentations. Talk about that. Yeah, so we have a strain of yeast that we're calling Hop Creep Killa. And, uh, you know, it what it does is it reduces the uh, production of diacetyl, especially as it pertains to when you, you know, are charging your beers up with, with big dry hop loads. Um, so, you know, we call it hop creep kill it. We understand that it doesn't completely eliminate hop creep, but it does eliminate the worst part of it, which is, you know, that diacetyl formation uh, that you can either get, um, that, that you get, like, especially after packaging can be per- particularly pervasive. And that was a strain where, again, that's just us listening to, uh, listening to our friends that who are brewers and deal with these challenges on a day-to-day basis. This really, um, you know, I was having a conversation with one of my buddies who, 
who's a brewer at, at Bailbreaker. Um, and he was like, you know what, dude, diastole sucks. Like, can you do something about that? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, actually we can totally do something about that. And like a couple months later, um, I hit him up and I was like, Hey, we got something. If you want to try it, you could, you should, you should check it out. And they've got a little 10 barrel system over there. And he brewed, you know, five, somewhere between five and 10 batches of it. And we're just like, this is, this, this thing is a power, is a freaking powerhouse. Um, it like, you know, they, 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 do you know forced diacetyl tests on all their beer ad nauseum, and this basically eliminates that um, that issue for them. So that was um, that was a really that's like that's that's how we like to work with breweries. Like we like to hear about the challenges, and we like to figure out how we can uh, how we can help them solve those issues. And so, with regard to your comment of like you use um, uh, like an enzyme uh, to to reduce that diacetyl, uh, in like after your dry hops, I'm assuming that's when you, that's when you throw it in. No. So uh, you can buy, I mean, commercial ALDC, you know, exists. A lot of people use it. And, um, typically, uh, typically it's added, um, at fermenter full. And so, um, you know, it's going to function, it's going to have, you know, like any enzyme, it's going to have a, you know, its own temperature and pH optimums and whatnot. But um, a lot, the folks who have, who have attempted to add the enzyme when dry hopping often, um, we may have even talked about this in another episode, I'm not sure, but often those folks don't get the intended results. Um, a lot of times there's too much um, alpha acetolactate already formed at that point. Um, and so uh, the I think the professional advice is to always add the enzyme at the start of fermentation if you want to get the maximum benefit. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a... <laughs> I feel like I feel like um, reasonable people could argue a lot about how this works. Um, but a lot of folks get it when you dry hop. They'll that's where that's where the diacetyl that they can't clear up really you know produces a, a serious problem for them. And so this particular strain um, eliminates that problem for for the breweries that we've been working with. The, th- the cool thing about having ALDC inside the cell instead of outside the cell, like when you add the enzyme exogenously, is that the cell never makes acetolactate in the first place. So, like, you can add your big hop charge, and whereas a normal yeast would make a bunch of acetolactate, and then you have to wait for the yeast to clean it back up, um, you know, with our strain you never make the acetolactate in the first place. So, you know, the analogy I like to use is with normal strain, you're basically making a mess uh, and then you can clean it up with enzyme additions. Whereas with our strain, you never make the mess in the first place. You don't have to worry about cleaning it up. The reason I think that that this is a kind of more elegant solution than, than adding an enzyme to your fermenter is because you know, enzymes, as soon as you add an enzyme into your, your, your wort, uh, it's going to start degrading. Um, it, it's, it's hard to predict how it's going to behave in the particular substrate that you're putting it into. The thing that's great about having 
the ALDC enzyme inside of the yeast cell is that yeast is really good at controlling the environment inside of its cell wall. So it's always going to be roughly, you know, the same pH inside of a yeast cell. Um, the protein is going to be much more stable inside of a yeast cell than it's going to be outside of yeast cell. So like the fun, so the way I, the way I think about it is like the second you add your, your, if you, if you're using an, uh, like a, an exogenous enzyme, like the second you add it to the fermenter, it's going to start stopping working. Like it's going to start degrading. It's going to start, and it might not even work that well in the first place in that particular environment. The thing that's nice about having it inside the cell is the cell knows how to control it. It knows how to make sure that it's active. Um, so it's much more effective that way. And I mean, that's, that's just what we've seen, um, with the, you know, a dozen or so uh, breweries that we've been we've been working with on this. Well, beyond that, I would say that your solution is more elegant because it's it's a whole set of other things that the brewer doesn't have to worry about. You don't have to go buy commercial enzyme elsewhere. You don't have to make sure it's shipped and stored properly and that it's, you know, has the right shelf life and and all that. You don't have to make sure that you're adding the correct dose. You don't have to um, you know, if you aren't adding it right at the, the fermenter full, you don't have to worry about, um, you know, um, oxygen ingress as you're adding it, you know, all those things, right? Because just as you said, it's, it's there, it's in the cell. So that's, what's elegant about it in my mind. I love it. Yep. No, that I thank you for, thank you for, for saying those things. I mean, that's, that's exactly like, you know, that's exactly how we feel about it. Cool. And so, and now this strain, you did some trials with this, uh, both at Drake's and um, Russian River that I understand had pretty, pretty stellar results, right? Yeah, okay. and I should I should also say like the the, the good folks at, at Bailbreaker were were the real pioneers. I mean, these guys are all pioneers, but but those guys really uh, took the took the plunge as well with with these two guys. Awesome. Um, okay, so I kind of got at this earlier, but um, this is a, maybe this is a very different question. I'm not sure. So earlier, I kind of uh, asked a little bit about how easier difficult it was to once you have something that you've engineered to just you know, plop it into different yeast strains. Um, the other question that is maybe kind of obvious and maybe is a stupid question, maybe the answer is it's just not that easy, but why don't, why not engineer a strain that has both of these modifications instead of separate ones? Um, and along those lines, you know, couldn't you, could you, how difficult is it for you to take several of the different modifications that you've made and put it all together in a, in a single strain? Or do I just need to go do co-fermentations to get all of these effects? Um, it is not hard to, to mix and match. So, um, and that's kind of, so part of our, I should, I should mention like part of our business is, um, just selling strains off the shelf. And another part of our business is, you know, working with uh, breweries on, on custom strains. And, you know, if you're a brewery and you want, you know, you want inten- more intense tra- biotransformation or you want to dial it to a certain level and you also want to eliminate, uh, you know, diacetyl formation, then, you know, we'll, we'll build that strain for you and make sure that it works just right for your process. <laughs> That was Charles Denby here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you're wondering how you can get either of the yeasts we discussed today into your brewery, the strain that produces intracellular ALDC is available now on the Berkeley Yeast website. And Charles tells me the thiol releasing strain will be commercially available in early 2021.
If you want to hear more about some of Berkeley Yeast strains, you should check out what was a really great WBC workshop with Charles, Chaz and Molly from Lalamont, who you might remember from episode 149, as well as Sean Sasser from Cigar City, Cole Hackbarth from Rheingeist Brewing, and Philip Emerson from Almanac Brewing. During that workshop, the panelists discussed a variety of topics, including how the various brewers are using GM yeast, how Charles and Chaz ensure GM yeast are safe to use, and so much more. It's really great content, and it's available for on-demand viewing, along with a whole lot of other great content for folks who snagged premium or boundless WBC registrations. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Charles, since we recorded this episode, you got back in touch with me to let me know that as awesome as what the Hopkilla yeast strain does, there's something that brewers have told you is not so awesome about it. What is that? Well, that's the name. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's a little bit of a misnomer. A, a bunch of brewers have pointed out to us, look, you're not getting rid of hop creep. You're getting rid of the worst part of hop creep, which is, you know, that diacetyl formation in the, in the, in the packaged product. So one of our, one of the breweries that we work with, they started, they just got rid of the name and started calling it diacetyl free. Um, so we, we love that name. So we're going to start using diacetyl free and, uh, so you can look for strains that are called DF, uh, 2.0. That's, that's, that's kind of how we've evolved there based on the feedback that we've been getting from, um, our, our partners and our customers.